welcome to the Cultivate and Keep podcast with myself and the co-host, the lovely co-host, Corey Haynes. Yo, yo. How are we doing today? Good. I feel like it's been a long time. It, it really like has. Since we've recorded. Yes, know? since we recorded. Yes. Well, this whole COVID-19 thing has, has definitely uh, put a dampening in our recording schedule, as well as the, the recording schedule for our guest today, who is Wes Fulkerson. <laughs> He's an author, an author of several books, um, most notably a trilogy uh, Starfall, Starcross, Starborn. He also has a book about writing books, which is very meta, called Writing with Purpose, and is actually used in college curriculum. And now, most recently, and most notably, a new book called For Whom the Sung Sings. And um, Wes, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Thanks, glad to be here. I got the first question. Go for it, Do you friend. feel a big time? I mean, you're a, an <laughs> author now, and it's the big list of accomplishments, and what you've produced. That's cool. Well... No, <laughs> no, um, it's, it's been really neat to see the growth this year though. It really has, um, you know, the, uh, the goal is to have people read what you write, mm-hmm. you know, to have representation and, you know, go through an actual publishing house and, you know, I'm really thankful that, uh, that I have those things now. So there definitely has been a lot of growth this year. Yeah. Um, and by the same token, you know, we're not planning on slowing down. So mm-hmm. we've got a lot of lot of hopes for further growth and, and influence and hopefully a lot more people get to read my stuff you know yeah yeah how how long has the book been like in the making i mean i know that there's you know ideas a flirt but like when you were actually putting i was born uh, on a cold summer's day yeah. <laughs> uh yeah you know that's a good question um this book is really funny for whom the sun sings you're talking about yes i imagine so i actually wrote this book back in about 2015 2016 oh wow and I loved the idea for it. So the basic premise is the entire world is blind and no one even knows what sight is. And into that world is a boy named Andreas. A boy named Andreas is born and he's able to see. And so the book really is about his ability kind of disrupting that society and his coming of age tale. Uh, and everything that that entails. And I loved the idea when I came up with it years ago. I thought, I'm going to write this book in a month. Most of the time when I write a novel, the rough draft takes me about three months. And I thought, I like this one so much, I'm going to write it in a month. took me a year. <laughs> took me an entire year to write just the rough draft. And that's not counting the, the research. And, of course, there was editing afterwards. It was a very difficult book for me to write. Hmm. But I'm very happy with how it turned out. And, you know, it, uh, we were waiting around for the right opportunity for it for a couple of years, too. Uh, it wasn't until, you know, a year and a half ago that it, it popped up on mm-hmm. now my agent, uh, his radar. And, you know, we got to put some business in the works. So, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, five I, years. I'm sure, right, 2015, like you said earlier, it's sort of uh, the industry and how the world works mm-hmm. in that world is very, like you described it as, uh, putting your lines out and seeing kind of what bites and, totally. and kind of going where it goes. But uh, glad to be able to talk about today. And it just came out back in March, right? It was kind of the official mm-hmm. launch yeah. month. March 17th, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And originally that's when we were wanting to record. It's right around that date. But yeah. now we're finally getting to it. And it's when we were wanting to do a book tour too. That's right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. What, oh, what were the plans? Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean you always want to go on the road a little bit and, and do as many in-person things as you can, you know, do some, some book signings and events. The, uh, the coronavirus stuff was already kind of on the horizon when we were planning. Mm-hmm. We thought we'd be able to get away with some stuff, but, uh, we actually had 
our book launch party planned, I think the day after uh, our state basically shut down yeah. all the venues. Uh, so, I mean, we had people that were planning on coming. Uh, thankfully, we didn't buy all the food and everything yet. We had our, mm -hmm. our entertainment cancel, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been cool, though, because we're able to do so much stuff online. We were talking before the show that we've had the the chance to go on a bunch of radio shows and podcasts and stuff. So hasn't been all bad. Yeah. Yeah. The good news also is that um, hopefully I would imagine, or at least in my experience has been people have a lot more free time Yeah, <laughs> and they're <laughs> stuck at home. So you might as well read a good book. It's, and um, yeah. hopefully that's influencing the, the Amazon sales and the Kindle book sales and it's funny. In between. It's funny you say that. Uh, I've got a friend, uh, Stephen Burnett, who runs a, a science fiction and fantasy magazine. And he posted a meme a while ago at the start of all this stuff. And it said, you know, coronavirus. And then authors be like, now that you have some free time on your hands. <laughs> so it has occurred to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, yeah. And then you have kind of competition from the Netflixes and the Hulus of the world. But hopefully yeah. again, I, I have been reading a lot more. I don't know about you. There's been other stuff going on in mm -hmm. your world and your life. But yeah. um, I've managed to make it about halfway through the book. I was also telling Wes beforehand that um, it's been a recent habit of mine to just read a whole bunch of books all at once. And so I'm reading like 10 to 15. I, do, I honestly don't even know the number of books, but it's over 10 at the same time. Um, but I've been able to chug away. It's, it's my, the book I read before I go to bed. I have my Kindle and I read in bed because it's just a good time to read. Yeah. And it's, a, and it's, it's not businessy too. You know, like yeah. we're both business dudes. And when you read a business book before you go to bed, then you can't You're go like to sleep. fired up yeah. and excited. Yeah. And then you have to go grab your phone and write down an idea or Google something. And so it's the perfect book for that kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Can't buy sleep like that, man. No. And it, then I, I go to bed thinking about good things and the whole world. But maybe to, to kick us off and to tell us a little bit more about yourself and kind of your background, what was West like as a kid? How'd you grow up? Parents? Um, upbringing? Sure. I think like most writers, Wes was a weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had that hunch, you know? <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I think... I think in pictures and, and scenes and dialogue. And as you get older, that's a really good thing, right? Because you're able to express yourself and be articulate and you learn that's just how you think. When you're a kid, you kind of want to invite people into that and it just makes no sense. Mm. So I think there were a lot of uh, stories that made no sense when I was a kid. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I grew up here in San Diego. I'm actually a fifth generation San Diegan. Wow. My children are sixth. Deep roots. Yeah, deep roots. So about as far back as you can go in San Diego, on my dad's side at least. Hmm. Uh, my mom's side wasn't that long ago that they came over from Greece. But um, now we're way in the past, so we'll come back a little <laughs> bit. Uh, yeah, you know, my, uh, my folks uh, raised us in church and loved each other and, you know, wasn't a perfect household, but it was pretty good. And uh, grew up loving reading. My mom brainwashed my brothers and I from the earliest age, you know, books are your friends, hmm. uh, books love you. Instead of like normal stuffed animals, she'd put like stuffed books in our, our crib, <laughs> literally. Wow. Uh, so I guess it worked because I really like books. <laughs> Thanks mom. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the questions I was going to ask was, are authors born or are they, you know, raised or nurtured kind of the nature versus nurture discussion. Sounds like there's a, I don't know, a bit of both. Do you have a take on that? Totally. I think it's Stephen King 
I mean, a, a lot of authors have talked about this, but I, I think he, uh, he particularly talked about this in one of his books on writing, where the idea is, you know, someone who's a terrible writer is probably never going to be an excellent writer. You know, you can teach someone who's a terrible writer and they can become a proficient writer. But you, you do have to have a certain kind of personality, I think, to, to be the sort of person who can do it for a living. Uh, and so I think, yeah, writers are born and made mm -hmm. because when all of us start out, we're not as good as we think we are. Yeah. You know, and it takes a lot of years to really hone your craft and, and learn when to be stubborn and when not to be. That's one of the weirdest things about being a writer is it is equally important to just not care what anyone thinks and to go with what your gut says is going to work. Mm -hmm. By the same token, that can ruin your career. It can ruin your book. You also need to know when to just bend because even though it doesn't make sense to you, you know, your editor's got a good point and you need to go with it. So the only way to, to walk that line is experience and, uh, and wisdom and a dose of humility. Mm -hmm. So obtaining that as a learning process that I think I'm still on, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We're obviously you have a, a high ceiling or higher than, than other people and managed to produce a few books and neither of us have. So <laughs> let's say that counts for something. Um, I remember, uh, I don't actually, I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to know like when you first met or knew about Wes, you know, we sort of, <laughs> do you remember how we met? I do. I it remember just how crossed how my mind. I, so I, I specifically <laughs> wanted to bring this up because that you, was my first interaction with Wes. Were too. you there for that? Yes. I'm so really? happy. I all, didn't know that. All I remember is Matt <laughs> Waugh, that punk. I remember him daring me. Well, this is some great backstory. Oh, so why don't you tell this is phenomenal. us? I don't remember a lot. So, okay. I'll I'll, the all I remember is what happened. I don't know how we were there. Okay. So I remember it was me, you, Matt Waugh and someone else. I think it was either Ryan or Timmy. Yeah, Timmy. Because it was Timmy's neighborhood. <laughs> and I remember, I don't know what we were doing, why we were together, do you? It was after small group. and Junior I high group, right? Yeah. No, no, no. High school. I wasn't in junior high. Yeah, I was high in school. high school. Okay. okay. Uh, it was like our the beginning of our sophomore year mm -hmm. of high school. Or maybe actually it was the end of our freshman I year. I remember being like... Feel you guys like must have been junior high. I felt... That was your leader. Dude, I remember... Yeah. He was with us for high school, too. Was he? Yeah. It was... He... I think it was freshman year. Because yeah. I remember feeling we were like tiny. very little. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still little, but, you know, <laughs> very little. Anyway, so we're all together. And were we, like, doorbell ditching? Or I don't know yep. what we were doing. I think doing. we were supposed to get uh, yogurt mill, and it was closed. And Matt was like, let's just go. He's like, I have an idea. Let's just mm -hmm. go doorbell ditch. We yeah, like, I remember it being, that, like, spontaneous. Matt? Yeah. yeah. Um, were you guys in a car or not in the car? Yeah, we were in the car. So I remember, yeah, so going from Yogurt Mill, coming back to a neighborhood, and like Matt had this plan. He knew like what we were going to do, and we had no idea. And so I remember pulling up, and he just said, like, Jeremy, go like ring that doorbell, basically. I was like, all right. And was it multiple <laughs> times or just one? No, he, yeah, he said. It was twice. Yeah. It was, he, we did I, it twice, right? Yeah, just like he said, do it a couple times, and you're like, ding, 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 ding. Was like a real quick. I think we came back though. I, I just remember like doing it once yep. and leaving and coming back again like five minutes later. Yeah, I think you even like knocked on the door. It was like a. Doo -doo -doo. I just have this memory I being of really like. Aggressive. That's all so I, I have a lot of doorbell ditching memories. <laughs> like I did that a lot. They're all blurring together. This one's up there. I remember like just you know I'm in my stance. I'm low and I'm slowly <laughs> creeping up to that door, getting ready. And I remember like extending my elbow to like start pounding on the door. And as soon as I, I go to hit it, it just swings open. And this like fast cut dude, like I think in his like underwear or whatever, just yes. books it. 
And I remember just turning around and I had no idea who I was the wearing guy was. shorts for the record. Yeah, and I just ran <laughs> as fast as I could. And I was fast and he just like caught me so quick and <laughs> actually no, not quick. It was like I got away from like the group and I remember like yeah. it was dark. I just remember hearing like grunts and like <laughs> and like feet smacking the pavement. And I was like running as fast as I could and he slowly caught me. I was so scared. Anyway, oh, did I man. miss any parts? No, that that's pretty much it. From from my perspective, I was in the back seat. Dude, that was great. On the side of the house <laughs> where Matt had pulled up, and I uh, th- I think that was literally the first time I even knew what doorbell ditching was, <laughs> where where I actually experienced. So I didn't even know what to expect really, and we had come around the first time. I thought like, oh, we're just gonna like knock on people's doors and like giggle. I'd never <laughs> expected someone to actually come out of the door and chase us. Let alone, I'm I'm glad he didn't send me out there yeah. and send you. But, uh, yeah, I just remember, like, of course, from us, too, like, a ginormous yeah. shredded <laughs> yeah. dude comes out. That's my, like, memory. Ready yeah. to, like, From kill. the shadows, just, yeah, like, from this, Like, anticipating every move, and I was just like, we're so dead. Like, we're done. <laughs> Never even thinking about, like, Matt or, like, why he chose this house. So here's a question. Or, did Matt text you? Like, did you know we were coming? No, no. I didn't know you were coming, but Gosh. Matt knew that I would catch you. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, he told me later he said that's why i brought them here no um dude that was crazy for some reason for like two years for a long time people would doorbell ditch my parents house so i think i was a freshman in college and i think i had come home for some holiday or something and uh yeah. and you guys were there kind of late i was kind of mad because it's like yeah, okay, you're mad. my parents are sleeping you yeah. know so uh yeah I, I came to the door the first time you guys were gone but i figured you'd come back because people always come back because otherwise it's not a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, I was just wearing shorts, you know, because I was going to go to sleep and I put on my running shoes and I just stood by the door for a while. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, threw open the door. There's a scared kid yelling, please don't hurt me. <laughs> I think, yeah, honestly, yeah. you were like begging for your Dude, life. Well, he, I remember when he caught me, he just like, I picked you up. Almost, yeah, I picked, picked me up. I like, grabbed my shirt. I remember it, I had no idea who this guy was because we didn't know that um, we knew, hey, Matt knew you. We thought you were some random dude. Yeah. So I was terrified. I remember like thinking like, why did I run away from the car? Like I just like, I went yep. into the darkness and like. We were like, oh, there goes Jeremy. See ya. I should have thrown you in the pool. Yeah, I don't know. That's it was probably like 20 me, seconds of running. It felt like five minutes of just like all out. Yeah, I think you made it a good like 30, 40 yards. Um, but it, it went by within, you know, yeah. seven seconds max. It was just, and then it was over. Really don't know what my plan was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just remember walking back and seeing Matt and you guys all just laughing. Matt was on. I was kind of just shocked. I was just like, ah, like, Oh, that was crazy. Matt was literally like peeing his pants slapping. He thought it was the funniest thing in the entire world. Uh, I'm going to text Matt for this. That's so funny. Good times. So if that doesn't give you a good picture of Wes <laughs> and who he is, I don't know what will, because that's probably the greatest. Get off my lawn, could, kids. That's right. Don't don't <laughs> doorbell ditch, Wes. Don't worry. We're not going to give out your address. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes, though. <laughs> Cranky old writer. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. One day, one day. No, that's good. Um, one of the things, I mean, how, and then Jeremy, I'll, I'll let you kind of take over, but uh, how did you become an author, a writer? Like, it's definitely one of those um, non-traditional kind of careers and paths in life, but walk us through, you know, after high school, kind of fill in the blanks to how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So after high school, I went to the university of Southern California, USC, and I studied marketing there with the understanding that I wanted to go into the arts into, in some capacity. Uh, I was really interested in music. I was interested in writing as well. 
and you know by my senior year in college i uh i had this idea for a novel that really interested me it's what became the starfall trilogy and i didn't know a lot but i knew enough at that point that i wasn't a practiced enough writer to do the idea that i had and do it well and so in a particularly boring business class I just started writing short stories, and I did that for uh, for most of a semester, and I just practiced in the world and, and wrote other short stories. And, you know, when, uh, when the semester was over, I figured it was time to write the novel. Uh, I definitely did things a different way than I think most people do, not necessarily a way I would recommend as general advice, but I didn't go out and get a normal job. I, uh, I felt that was the direction the Lord was leading me to, was no this is your full-time job be excellent at it be dedicated to it get it done so i got my starving out of the way in the early days thankfully but um yeah you know i'd, I'd just sit down every day i'd i'd read i'd study i'd write and i'd reach out to people and you just you don't stop you know um you have your illusions at the beginning which is actually helpful because if you didn't then you would never start if you knew how hard it was going to be but, um, you know, one thing leads to another. You practice, you get a little better. A few people read your stuff. Uh, I was self-publishing in the early years, which, you know, if I were to do it again, I, I maybe wouldn't do. But the nice thing about that is somebody reads your work. And uh, going to USC, I had a lot of friends in the film industry. And so uh, my first, like, real set of jobs came from a director friend of mine, a guy named Brian Ivey. Really great guy. Uh, he did the Dropbox. He's doing... Um, Emmanuel was his latest film. Uh, soon he's doing a movie on Kirk Franklin, I think is his next project. But um, really great guy who's running a, a company called Arbella Studios. And he happened to read uh, my novel because one of the guys in his, uh, in his production company had read it and really liked it. And so he liked the way that I wrote and he started hiring me to, you know, to write some screenplays and stuff. And that led to other work as well. And so that's kind of where things kicked off. I've been thinking, um, like, how how do you get, like, how do you improve at writing, you know? Like, to me, it's it, just the more you do it, like, what makes someone improve and get better at, at that practice? <clears throat> it's a lot of things. The easiest answer is you need to read. The next level underneath that is you need to understand what you read. So I've heard it said that if you want to understand something, you have to take it apart. It's why every mechanic in the world at some point has had half an engine on the front of his lawn, right? You have to take it apart to understand it. And if you can put it back together, then great. You can do the thing. You can build. And it's the same thing with writing. So the first thing is you need to read a lot. You need to find your favorite authors and you need to ask, you know, why do I like them? What do I like about what they're doing? How are they doing it? Right? And you really have to get analytical. Um, it's a matter of learning the actual craft. I think in this postmodern age, it's very popular to say that art is just self-expression, right? That's a lie. It's not true. And unfortunately, it's what we're taught. And it's part of the reason why a lot of people have difficulty creating art, because we're told from the time that we're kids in school, you know, if you express yourself, then that's art. Well, if you flip somebody off on the freeway, you've just expressed yourself, right? It's not art. It's, it's just emotion. And really what writing is, is it's structure and breath, right? Um, I, I like to borrow from Tolkien when he talks about sub-creation being what we as, as human beings do when we are creative, right? So God created and we artfully rearrange things, right? So we have a lot to learn from the grand act of creation. And so what did God do when he created man? He formed him from the dust of the earth, structure, 
and he breathed into him the breath of life, a piece of himself. And so if you want to be a good writer, you have to learn structure and you have to learn how to put yourself in what you've just made to animate it. And so obviously that's a deep well and we could talk for hours about that. But fundamentally, you've got to be working on one of those two things at all times. How do I put myself in this in a meaningful way to animate it? And how can I get better at the structure? Do you find yourself, um, like when you're reading other books, does it seem like you're studying or like even critiquing or like constantly trying to learn? Like, what is that like for you? Is that like a fun part of your life or is it, can would you, you consider that work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like anything else. Um, your, your range of enjoyment just widens. So things that are bad cause you more pain <laughs> and things that are good cause you more joy, I think. Um, so in terms of how do I read things, it just, it depends on my mood. It depends on what I'm trying to do. I think there's a part of it that you can't turn off, right? Uh, a little bit analytical and in whatever I'm reading, but, uh, yeah, it just depends on my mood. I mean, I can, I can sit down and just be along for the ride and enjoy a story or, I can really be diving into it and trying to study what the author's doing. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think about, I guess, uh, as like a, I don't know what you call me, a hobbyist writer. <laughs> Somebody, I don't know, just like writing things for the sake of, like you said, kind of just like self-expression, um, but like trying to have some sort of idea of, you know, what makes good writing. When you were just starting out, I mean, how did you learn how to learn how to write you know was there was it literally just practice or um were there books you picked up people who said hey here's how you should think about things or do things or school experience totally uh i hope this doesn't come across as sacrilegious because i obviously mean it as a metaphor but uh if you're a christian you have the bible if you're a writer you have aristotle's poetics and truthfully that really is foundational for how we understand the craft and there are different schools of thought, but an awful lot of it goes back to the ancient Greek philosopher who wrote about what makes a good play. Uh, and so you read Aristotle, you know, you read uh, more recent modern books on the craft by people who know what they're talking about. You know, I, I read uh, Donald Mass's book, Writing the Great Breakout Novel, very early on, you know, um, and just as much as I could get my hands on from people who knew what they were talking about telling me, hey, this is how you craft a good story and this is why. So, I mean, it really was, it was partially study from experience, you know, from doing, partially study from watching, and partially studying the principles. You really need to do all those things if you want to really master it, you know. How do you, um, like, do you have friends that think in the same way that you think along these lines and... Um and I think like for myself, like whenever I'm in like a certain phase of life, like I want to, you know, go through life with friends like by my side in that same spot. But how is it for you as like, I think I don't I don't know a lot of people your age that are book authors and that's what they do. They just create and write. So what is that like for you and how do you relate with friends? I don't have a ton of writer friends. I have mm -hmm. a couple of them, but most of them are significantly older than I am. Uh, and you know them because, like, they're in the industry, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, in one case, my uh, my writing mentor, really, really awesome guy by the name of Bill Farrell. Um, I know him because I knew his son when we were kids. <laughs> and, you know, at a certain point in my career, knowing what he had accomplished and what he, you know, was doing with his career, called him up and said, hey, got any tips? And thankfully, he, he did and does. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, in terms of... Uh, 
peers, I don't know a ton of other writers. I know a few, but uh, most of my friends do other things. So, I mean, like, what is it like just relating with your friends, I guess, on like a day-to-day level? Like, is that difficult? No. Um, I mean, in one sense, I think being a writer colors your world because everything is research, Mm -hmm. right? And there's always that voice in the back of your head saying, okay, what is this going to? Because everything is a piece of something in the future, right? How am I going to use this feeling, this scene, this this moment? Not in a contrived way, you know, but uh, I think there is a little bit of that. But I don't think it it necessarily hinders relating with others. Mm -hmm. I think maybe one of the good aspects about it is having a lot of practice learning to be articulate and having a lot of practice in researching different topics. So I, I love to talk to people who love what they do. And it's fine with me if it's not what I do, because mm-hmm. part of what I do is get interested in some random thing, dive into it really deep. Yeah, that makes sense. And then that works into a story somehow. Yeah. You know, um, so I mean, research is part of writing. And so I, I love that aspect of it, mm-hmm. you know. What, one of the things I've been uh, <clears throat> nerding out on <laughs> more recently is uh, kind of like, Called like personal knowledge management, or you know, the process of, like you said, um, collecting things, uh, sort of like research as it comes to you, not necessarily, you know, everything is research, right? So, just like having a way to collect, categorize, um, be able to manage it. Uh, do you have like a formal process around that, or do you just, you know, string things from what you remember? Or I have a mind palace, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, where you okay, visualize. Yeah, this is a joke. Part. Yeah, do yeah. Uh, <laughs> do uh, dinosaurs live there? Do dinosaurs live in the mind palace? <laughs> so Corey's also been nerding out on dinosaurs I'm, as well. I'm so. saving up to buy a mind palace. So <laughs> nice. maybe when I get enough imaginary money, uh, I'll a put mind some dinosaurs. Right now. <laughs> imaginary <Yeah. laughs> money. Buy a mind palace with some dinosaurs. Uh, you know, it varies by project for me. So I, I do a, a fair amount of work in film from time to time. Just kind of depends on what projects are on my horizon what what sort of gigs come in when i'm working on uh on film i tend to be more on the computer and i'll have my files you know sometimes summaries of things that i've read and, and stuff like that mm-hmm. when i'm working on something that's not <laughs> that's not nonfiction, when i'm working on something fictional it's a lot more in my mind it's a lot more marinating taking in a lot of stuff and just letting it simmer mm-hmm. um, i always have a notebook that i write in while i'm writing a book while I'm writing a novel and it's filled with questions. It's filled with random paragraphs of, Hey, this is why this person is this way. You know, here's some tidbit about the world just sort of as things come to me. It's not terribly organized. Um, my outlines are semi-organized. Uh, I use sort of a different method I think than most writers do for my outlines. And then, you know, it, it goes from the chaos of, of research and creativity to the semi order of the outline and by the time we get to the book i'm able to work out the kinks and make sure it's something people can understand Hmm. what what's non-traditional about the outlining writing process so i've sort of half made up my own version of outlining again when i'm doing stuff with film it's a little different you've got to do the note cards you've got to write your treatments right but um when i'm outlining for a novel i use what i call the character driven bubble diagram method and the only reason why it has a fancy name is every once in a while I lecture on, I lecture on writing and I have to call it something. Yeah, to get a, a name, otherwise it's not real. Right? Yeah, TM, patented, <laughs> Fulkerson. 
yeah, and basically what it is is, you know, you use those bubble diagrams or spider diagrams, you know, when you were a kid. Basically, I put a character's name at the top of a sheet of paper, and I track the milestones in, in their growth and in the plot. And uh, it's very visual. That's part of the reason I like it. It leaves a lot of space to add things. I can add questions, you know, in, in certain milestones or events. I can put little offshoots. Hey, what about this? And that offshoot leads to other offshoots. And it ends up taking, you know, a number of pages. But I like it because it's sort of a living document. It, uh, it shows the entire journey. It's visual. And I can add to it. So not the most normal way of doing things, hmm. but it works for me. You know, I've always, not always, but I've kind of kind of wanted to write a book, but I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know if I got it in me. It sounds like a process. and He's turning it off to you. He's a, li- <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I'm like, oof. Crushing your dreams over one. here. I mean, it's like anything else, though. If you've got to do it, you've got to do mm-hmm. it. You know, and, you know, hard things tend to be rewarding. Yeah. I mean, I think it also speaks to, like, just how we are all wired and created. And you are yeah. clearly made to do this and the way your mind thinks and your processes and... Um, like it's evident that it's like a natural gifting for you, you know. I think if I tried it, it'd be it'd be like pulling teeth, you know, <laughs> a little bumpy. It's like pulling teeth for me sometimes yeah. too, you know. It's it depends on the day of the week. That was actually a question I had. Um, yeah, just I guess like the process, like how does it go when you know you think of like work and like a hard day's work, right? If you're out digging holes, like you might get discouraged because you're tired, but you just push through and do it. But when it comes to like a creative process, like I don't like how much pushing is there, right? Like it, at some point it, it doesn't flow. So how do you deal with like discouragement and uh, maybe feeling like stuck um, in your story or yeah. How's that work for you? It's one of those things again, where it's a truth that needs to be qualified by another truth. Uh, a very wise man. It was Mark Hoffman uh, once said that truth has a right hand and a left hand. Right. And so if you if you miss that, it's easy to err to one side or the other of reality. So there is a lot of pushing through. Right. There is a lot of sit in the chair, turn off distractions and force words to come out of your hands. Right. Uh, I'm imagining that happening literally. And it's a huge distraction to me now. Um, You know, you sit down and you type, you sit down and you write stuff out and you you force it to come out. That's balanced by the fact that if you're not prepared you come to a point where you really have run out of steam you need to leave and take a long walk right you need to to let those ideas marinate maybe you need to do some more research and it's the sort of thing where again experience and wisdom are just necessary it'd be nice if there was an easier answer but you kind of learn to feel out when you're just procrastinating versus when no i really have hit a wall i'm not doing my best work i need to reassess and really figure out some of the problems so it just depends. Fair. I mean, yeah, it's it, one of the things I think we all struggle with regardless, yeah. right? It's, uh, it applies to just about anything probably. Yeah. Like you said, I, I mean, unless you're like really doing like a monotonous kind of monkey work kind of task, which um, I think a lot of us, especially here are, you know, blessed that we don't have to do a lot of, um, but even then there, there's going to be those, places where I think, I think that's a good point you made about like delineating between, um, am I really actually stuck and like, I need to go kind of take a breather or am I just procrastinating? Yeah. Kind of like feeling the resistance, you know? Well, it's funny. So often people, especially when they're starting out writing are so terrified of running out of ideas. Hmm. But if you meet a writer 
and I think this is probably the case for most people as well, but particularly writers, the true problem is focus, right? Too many ideas. Too right? many ideas. There's, you want to go off and do this thing. You, you know, <laughs> you want to check your phone. You want to go on the internet. You want to read a book, whatever. And yeah, focus really tends to be the solution a lot, I think. And it's funny, for as much as people talk about writer's block, one of the odd things about writing as a job is that you do have your emotions by necessity so wrapped up in it. I mean, if you don't, it's not real. You know, there has to come a certain point, i.e. editing, when you shut off that part of yourself and you just look at it objectively. But while you're creating, like we're talking about structure and breath, you've got to put a little piece of your soul in that thing. And so if you are going through a point in your life where you have some emotional turmoil, that's what writer's block is nine times out of 10 is you have some unresolved emotional issue. Most of the time it's not a craft issue if you understand how to write, you know? So that is kind of an added complication uh, to writing in particular. I'm sure that applies to other things as well, but you kind of regularly encounter that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I, wa I wanna reverse and kind of go back to something you said earlier. Um, but you mentioned how when you'd gone through college and then you were sort of, you know, the next step and then you felt like the Lord was leading you to go down this non-traditional path and write a book, explore the arts, um, you know, do something uh, more creative. Could you elaborate on what it actually meant or felt like to feel the Lord's calling and kind of how you process that decision? Totally. You know, uh, I think most young Christians, <laughs> a lot of not young Christians, maybe everybody, struggles with this idea of how do I discern the Lord's voice and how do I know if the Lord's leading me somewhere and, and trying to tell me something. And a friend of mine told me years ago, you know, he's God. If he's trying to tell you something, I think he's going to be persistent. I think he's going to make himself fairly clear. And in this case, it was not something that I was trying to do out of college. Um, and it was made very clear. Uh, you know, it's almost comical. You could write it. Every, everywhere I went, people were talking about the parable of the talents. You know, I'd, I'd go to church, parable of the talents. I'd hear someone speaking, parable of the talents. You know, go to a retreat, parable of the talents. And over and over and over again, the message that was just put in front of my face during this time where I had to make a decision of what my next steps were going to be was, hey, if God's given you a talent and you don't use it, you're doing something wrong. You have a responsibility to use that and grow it and a profit from it, right? Uh, you know, profit for your master, basically. And so that was in front of my face constantly. Um, I would see things like that in the Bible when I would read it. I would feel that way when I prayed. You know, I would talk to people that I trusted, basically begging them to tell me, you know, no, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> and they just wouldn't, you know. Um, one of the... Uh, one of the most important things I heard, I, I had a talk with my dad at one point. Um, and I don't know that I brought it up to him. I think he was just talking to me. And he told me, uh, he was talking about, you know, the art that I was doing. And, and he said, you know, one thing that you have to learn is everything in life has a cost. A lot of times people say, oh, you can have it all. And why would you say you can't have it all? Well, of course you can't have it all. You got to make choices, right? He said, everything in life has a cost. And everything gets more expensive the older you get. So if there's something you have to do, do it now, you know. And so that was, that was key to making my decision as well. But, uh, you know, as human beings, we're fallible. We, uh, 
we get ideas in our head, we get excited about things. And, you know, a lot of times that just doesn't correspond to reality. You know, I, I think uh, we would like God sometimes to tell us what to do every second of the day and tell me what color shirt to wear. But, uh, you know, he, he doesn't. And I, uh, I think a fairly tried and true method is, look, you've really got to look beyond your own feelings. You know, that can be a, a prompting. That can be a, a beginning, I think. But, you know, you really ought to be seeing some confirmation in, in the word. You really ought to go to wise people and ask their advice. And if all those things are lining up together, then I think that's a fairly good indicator that you've got a path that maybe you ought to take. Hmm. So that was the case for me. It's just sort of the combination of the signs, right? However yeah. you want to define that, right? It was, like you said, the uh, your own kind of calling and the Lord talking at you and then yeah, people and uh, that voice in front of you of through messages. And yeah, it's interesting. I, that something we've talked about a few times, but um, you mentioned earlier, I think everyone struggles with kind of finding the voice of God. And especially when there's, when you feel like you're in it, it, it can be scary, you know, if like, yeah. what do I do and what do I listen to and how do I, you know, you don't want to make the wrong decision, right? You know, I was having a conversation about this with, uh, with someone I mentor uh, just a couple of days ago, actually. He, he had an idea. He thinks maybe the Lord's leading him to go a certain way, and he was basically asking me, how do I know if this is a good idea? And so we got on this whole topic, so it's kind of interesting we're talking about it now. And I think part of the reason why we struggle with that so much is we sort of feel like God owes us uh, an answer all of the time, and he does not. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if we say we believe the Bible, we'll read the Bible. There's these periods where God just doesn't talk much, you know? I mean, uh, Jesus has that parable. Let's talk about parable of the talents again. It's not to say that God isn't present in some way, but the parable starts with the master went away on a journey. Hmm. You know, he, he gave you some resources. He gave you work to do. I'll check back up on you later, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, I think part of the reason why we can struggle with knowing, you know, okay, is this somewhere the Lord is leading me is because we, I think, reduce the significance of, <laughs> of the Lord talking to a human being. I mean, if I, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe other people's experience will, will prove me wrong. But I think sometimes if, if we expect that constantly, that that can confuse us. And when it does happen, I think, like you were saying, we're like, whoa, what do I do now? Because the way we think of that has so changed. I mean, if, if the God of the universe is going to bother to give you a sign, it's a pretty serious and grave thing. Go do it, dude. You know, but uh, if, if we've sort of watered down the idea of what that means, then I think we can have confusion in the positive as well. Hmm. Yeah. Um, a question back, but I wanted to, to ask, what would you... Like, how would you, so we kind of were on that, but how would you advise someone like coming, like a younger, young man coming to you with this question, hey, what do I, how do I find my, my direction in my career and my, and my talents and what God's gifted me and how do I figure that out? What do I do with it? Um, how would you advise someone kind of in that, that general phase? Look for fruit. I would say look for fruit and then look for a need. <laughs> you know, um, if you're not doing anything, you need to go out and, Mm -hmm. start trying things right and, and and see what happens but um you know i i don't say this to to be conceited but part of the reason why i felt like okay maybe this is something that that god made me for is you know when i was thinking about doing this thinking about becoming a writer i had a number of experiences that 
led me to believe that it could be profitable, right? You get up on stage, you share a piece of poetry, and people cry. You know, that's, that's not a normal thing for most mm -hmm. people, right? And so whatever your particular talent happens to be, look for fruit. Look to see if people are, are moved by it, if the Lord can use it, if good things are happening. I think that's a good, you know, first sign. Um, and then also, you know, if, if you look at that and you say, well, I don't, I don't know where there's fruit. Mm -hmm. I would say look for a need and start, you know, and I think that God and his wisdom can bump you a different way if he needs to. And, and also hopefully he can trust you enough to see that if you're going on a path for a while and you've been trying and there's mm -hmm. no fruit and there's not the promise of fruit later <laughs> that, okay, maybe I need to try something yeah. else, you know? So fruit and need, I would say would be two of the biggest things. Yeah. I think that's, um, like, so I think of that and like heartbreak are two like really hard places to be in life. And, you know, I think it's one of those, like those topics, like we hear them and it's, I think it's easy to give like, a, a quick answer. Oh, just do this. Yeah. But it's one of the ones where like when you're actually in that, like it's, it's pretty darn hard, like to figure yeah. out like, you know, what do you want to do with your career? What do you want your job to be? Uh, how do you find a person you're going to marry? Like, all these questions, like, they're huge. Yeah. And it's like, when you're in that, it's like constantly, like, daunting over your mind. Yeah. Um, so I was just curious what you would, <coughs> how you would advise someone. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's a great question. You know, it, it takes courage and humility. Because in the one sense, you know, we can get afraid because, you know, <laughs> we're all told in this country from the time we're two years old, you're going to change the world, Johnny. <laughs> Probably not, Johnny, <laughs> you know, and, and the truth of the matter is we do, we do not always have an accurate picture of ourselves, you know, um, where we have influence, where we don't, everybody's going to grow up to be the president of the United States. That doesn't mean that we don't all have significant work to do. We do. And some people will influence millions of people. Some people will influence 10 people and that matters too, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, yeah, I think we have to be humble and, uh, and like you said, you know, have courage to to pick something and try and start and adjust as you need to. Yeah. How, um, how does your, how does your faith influence the way that you work? You know, like your career writing. I, it's funny cause I think, uh, you mentioned earlier how every, you know, everything's kind of derived from God's creation. We're just reorganizing, remixing, uh, you know, already using what God has created and story is a big part of that. Uh, writing is, I mean, the Bible is, you know, the perfect example. How does your faith influence uh, everything you do as, I guess, part of your career? Brilliant question. So many of these are so deep. You know, we really truly could talk about that for hours. Mm -hmm. at, at the macro meta level, the novel is a Christian art form. You don't have this method of storytelling without the underlying idea that there is a plan that reason uh, rules our lives that we have uh, a reason for hoping that things end with hope that good generally will triumph you know and uh, it's really interesting to look at art forms across times and histories and cultures and, and really see that right so uh, that's a whole big deep thing that we're not going <laughs> to get into but uh, for me personally my answer to that now is a lot different than what I would have said in the past I think in the past I had this general idea that, okay, I need to go change the world, right? And again, if we didn't have illusions, we would never start anything. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't have significant work to do. It's just as we gain experience, we gain a deeper understanding of our role. So in the past, I would think that, you know, you want people to read your book and, and fall on their knees and convert or something, right? And, you know, hey, if that's happening, great. However, I think sometimes 
again, we can lack the humility of understanding that our role is part of something larger. So the way that my faith informs what I do now is I understand that I'm a, story, I'm a storyteller. You know, my, my job is to stand in front of the hearth and sing songs and tell stories. And I believe that, <laughs> that that's enough. You know, I believe that um, instead of having a checklist of, okay, this character has to pray, this character has to get converted at the end, you know, nobody dies, you know, all these sort of things that you do see sometimes in, you know, in Christian publishing. I think that rather than that, what's more important and harder is as a Christian writer, I think our job is to walk with God and then write and trust that God who knows the beginning of my days from the end of them, you know, is able to use the experiences he's given me. So I think for me, my, my aim and my goal is to be so thoroughly filled with, you know, God's truth and his word, that that's what ends up coming out in this form that we call storytelling, rather than, like I said, trying to fill in particular boxes. So I think that, um, you know, like it says in, in the Bible, do all things uh, with excellence as unto the Lord instead of for men that I need to go and I need to really understand my craft. I think I need to do it excellently and brilliantly, understanding that ultimately I'm doing it for an audience of one. And and that's enough. You know, if God wants to change the world through it, that is that is his prerogative, and I'm happy to do whatever helpful tasks he wants me to do. But my job is to be really good at telling stories. And, uh, and like I said, to do so from a place of abundance. Why are you smiling, Corey? <laughs> No, so you're just like so into that. That I was, was good. I mean, yeah. well, I think what he's saying, um, like doing it with abundance, like I was thinking for myself, well, w- with everyone, like that's how it should be, right? Like whatever your yeah. gifting is, whatever, wherever you're, you are placed in life, like do it with all that you have with yeah. an abundance. So that's a cool way of looking at it. Thanks. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I wish I remembered who it was who said it, but there's an old story that says uh, during some revival in England or something, a shoemaker walked up to, you know, I don't know who it was, George Whitfield or whoever the preacher was and said, you know, preacher, I'm a, I'm a shoemaker and I, I've just gotten saved. I want to dedicate my life to Jesus. How do I live as a Christian shoemaker? And supposedly the guy said, you don't live life as a Christian shoemaker by putting little, cro- by putting little crosses on your shoes. You do it by making excellent shoes, you know? And of course we need to share the gospel. We need to tell people why we have this hope why we feel driven to do things with excellence and with joy. You know, of course, we have uh, an instruction on how to live in, in the Word, and we ought to do that. But in terms of our craft and our jobs, you know, I do think a lot of it comes back to that. Yeah. That's good. Do you have a specific direction, Corey, you want to head I now with questions? I did. I did um, sort of related, but I'm wondering how, if, how that relates to the book, For Whom the Song Sings, and... Because you, you mentioned, we, you know, way back in 2015 when you felt inspired and uh, when you sat down and you started putting the pieces together and, you know, getting words on paper, uh, the theme of the book, the general message, the story, um, is it in any way tied to something that you're trying to deliver or is it, again, like crafting a great story that it's, I think, uh, part of you know, what you wanted to deliver on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that goes back to what we were talking about before. I, I believe a good story is structure plus breath. 
So yes, I, I had very deliberate structural goals when I set out to do this. Goals that I probably cannot tell you without ruining the book for everybody <laughs> out there. Um, so yeah, there definitely was that. But by the same token, if you don't have a burning question that you're seeking to solve as you write, then I don't know that you're really putting yourself in it. And so, yeah, you know, with this book, I think the dedication really says it all. At the beginning, it says, to everyone who has ever felt alone in knowing the truth. And that's what the book is. Hmm. You know, it's, it's a catharsis for this feeling. Um, it's not everything tied up in a bow. It's uh, a very real look at what a breakthrough costs. You know, uh, these questions that we don't always talk about in polite society. Is truth worth it? You know, is peace worth it? Uh, what is peace? What is truth? Right. And what it costs to affect change. And so those were some of the things that were on my mind as I was writing the book. Um, and like mm -hmm. I said, the, the main thing was just this overwhelming feeling of, you know, everybody knows what it feels like to see something so clearly, like it's literally like it's just in front of your face, like in the book, right? One character can actually see. <laughs> and what is so apparent to you is just absolutely elusive to someone else. No matter how many times you try to explain it, no matter how, how you try to put it, it just, they don't see it. Mm. And I think there's a real frustration there that everybody can relate to. And so this book is born out of that. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, again, I don't, it's kind of funny because we can't really talk about like the story because otherwise, you know, like I said, it would, it would give it away. But one of the things that struck me, um, and again, sort of through Andreas, the main character's rite of passage and his kind of development as a character is that internal struggle a little bit of like, what do I do with this? You know, like, yeah. is this, should I just kind of shut this down, keep it a secret? Um, should I not share this with people? And then once he sees that he actually used it for good, then he kind of opens up to the idea of, uh, you know, sharing with others. And then he feels like, oh, I have to do something with this now. Um, and it was a kind of interesting revelation, you know, because most people, I think, would have the view like maybe, oh, I, I have an amazing talent. Why does no one recognize me for it? But he sort of had the opposite struggle of, I have this thing that I don't really want or know what to do with. Yeah. Someone help, you know, or like, you know, he was very alone in that too. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's so fun about getting to write is you're sort of, sort of, uh, given the chance to grapple with these questions that we don't often spend a lot of time thinking about. And there are certain things that we just take for granted about the human race that are totally untrue. Right. Uh, you know, people will say, well, everybody wants to be happy. I don't think so. Like, I've met some people. I'm pretty sure that some of them really don't, you know, there's a part of the human heart that loves darkness. And yeah, I, I think that you, you see that struggle there. Absolutely. Something that, that should be exciting, you know, in, in the fallen broken world uh, that we're in, that he's in, that's not always going to be a reaction. Mm -hmm. Cause it makes them start to question uh, sort of upbringing, um, relationships, uh, how thing, how the world works, you know, it was a lot of how his world works and it's pretty similar, you know, like you, um, maybe you're told certain, we've talked before about how there's certain things that you accept or that you're taught. And then over time you, it starts to kind of like eat away at you a little bit. And then one day you realize you're like, no, yeah. that's not true. What? No, <laughs> come on. And they go, like, wait a second. No, I'm going to, I'm going to tell the truth or I'm going to accept this as truth. Uh, but it could cost you, like I said, in, in, yeah. um, 
I'm only halfway through, so I don't know how it ends, but uh, it's, that's the journey for all of us, right? You have to talk to me when you finish it. I'm curious what you think. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll shoot you a text. It's a wild ride. Um, going back uh, a little bit into sort of who you are, and probably I'm, I'm assuming a lot of the things that kind of influence now, you know, part of your quote unquote research is family, um, married, two kids. Yep. Right. Just had the second. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you end up meeting Rita? And I don't know. I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are on finding a wife and starting a family and becoming a father and having that be kind of this next chapter of your life. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, somewhere out there when you said the question, how did you meet your wife? My wife is listening and, <laughs> and laughing maniacally. Because you guys have different stories, let me guess. <laughs> Same story, but she loves to tell it. <laughs> uh, basically, I ran a club in high school, and uh, we were doing like sort of like a suggestion box kind of thing. But uh, What kind of club was it? It was the Christian club, and uh, we called it God Talks. So basically, people would come in and anonymously write you know, a question on a slip of paper and put it in, in this thing. And without going into a, a whole lot of detail about where the club was and, and whatnot, I ended up... Uh, kind of having to take it over so that it didn't die. And one of the things we did was, okay, people want to come, they have questions, you know, great. We'll, we'll deal with them head on. And so we would have these God talks. Well, she was a freshman. I was a senior and she came in and apparently had written a question that was really eaten away at her. And I guess I dealt with it a little more cavalierly than I should have and <laughs> embarrassed her horribly. Uh, so we got married and started having kids. Nice. Uh, no, we, uh, we didn't spend a lot of time with each other until, until I was out of college and she was in college. We were both living in L.A. And, uh, oh, that's she, right. Yeah, yeah. She was going to APU. And we knew each other a little bit because of mutual friends. And, um, you know, we were in, in proximity. And I, uh, I liked her and she liked me. And so we started going on dates. I'm not a believer in hanging out. Hey, you want to hang out sometime? <laughs> what did you do in sin? Hey, you I like you. Her. Let's go on a date. Nice. <laughs> Love it. That strategy worked. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure she liked that. That was yeah. a, good, a good strategy. She there. appreciated the lack well, of ambiguity. Well, he had to make up from, you know, how they met. So Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he had to go at it full steam ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of beating around the bush a little bit, just go right for the kill. That's, yeah. That's good. Yeah. No, but um, yeah, Rita's a, a wonderful, amazing woman. I don't deserve her. But uh, been living down here in San Diego for a few years. And like you said, we just had our second child. So we've got uh, one of each now. And it's a lot of fun. Family's uh, a real blessing and quite a trip. I feel like I wish she was here. I want to ask her, like, what is it like being married to a writer? Like, I feel <laughs> like it's, um, you know, like that's not like an everyday type yeah. of person. So, well, yeah, and um, jokes aside, she would have things to tell you. It is. Yeah, no, I'm honestly <laughs> curious. I was asking beforehand, like, so do you work at home? Kind of what that looks like with the young kids. And yeah, um, I just feel like the day to day life is is um, is like I said, is not your normal, like average Joe. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. It's a give and take because on the one hand, you know, <laughs> it's funny. Before we got married, I told her very seriously, like sat down and said, OK, you have to understand <laughs> you're marrying an artist there are some weird things that come with that. Like, are you sure this is what you want? You know? And, um, and it's a little bit of give and take, you know, there, there are some idiosyncrasies to living this kind of lifestyle and you know, the way that, the way that you get work, the way you get work done. Uh, and you know, from, from my side too, you, you have to live with people and be a decent person. You know, I, I love GK Chesterton. I think he's one of the, 
the great thinkers of the recent Western tradition. And he just has all these very pithy, deep quotes, one of which is, the true tragedy of the artistic temperament is that it produces no art. And so it's funny, on the one hand, you know, you do need to sort of brood and, and think deeply and have your focus and pace and walk around and be a weirdo. But by the same token, you also don't have to be a jerk. You know, you don't, you don't have to uh, treat small interruptions like, like a big thing. You know, you need to uh, let your decisions be deliberate enough to where you can work in an environment where small incidental things that are normal, you know, aren't, aren't interrupting your process, you know, so it's, it's give and take. Hmm. How, how do you feel like you've changed since getting married and then since having kids and becoming a father? How long is this show? (laughs) Uh, Significantly. I think that, gosh, that's a deep question. You know, I, uh, I recently read something by, again, another great thinker uh, who I think I would, I would put in the general intellectual line of G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton influenced Lewis, C.S. Lewis. Mm. C.S. Lewis being a, a big influence on a theologian named Douglas Wilson. Yeah. And I uh, read a book of his recently at the behest of one Mike Van Meter uh, called Father Hunger. And in that book, he talks about what marriage does to a man. And I think he really hit the nail on the head. He said that a man, generally speaking, can't truly be responsible until he has a wife, until he has someone to take care of. And I think that that's been true in my life. I think you can be a generally responsible, you know, man, but it just changes when you have someone to, to provide for, you know. So I think I'm, I'm more pragmatic than I used to be. I think, God willing, less selfish. You know, it's, it's not about what I can get. It's, okay, how can I take care of my family? You know, looms much larger in my mind uh, than those other things. Um, and being a father, you know, that's another huge paradigm shift. You know, you realize that everything you do is going to affect the development of a little person. Mm. And so I think... I, I don't want to come across negative. I know I've used this term a couple of times, but I do think there's a lot of disillusionment in that things don't necessarily work the way that I thought they did in a lot of respects, you know, and, and there is a lot of over the years having to humbly come and realize, okay, the way I've been thinking about this is wrong. Uh, things that I thought were fine are kind of not, uh, things that, you know, <laughs> uh, things that I thought were not great are actually, there's a need for those things, you know, um, so I, I don't know. I mean, if you have a, a more specific question you want to ask, I'm happy to dive into it, but it's, it's been a lot of change. Yeah. I mean, I, I only asked to kind of tee up whatever was top of mind for you because it's sort of the, you know, origin impetus for this podcast, our exploration of how a man develops and changes. And yeah. especially, uh, I think that's very true. I mean, getting married is a real kind of, uh, turning point and yeah. a milestone yeah. for well character it's funny too i mean even just to take a, a very practical example it's gonna seem obvious when you're single totally cool to be poor <laughs> <laughs> totally fine you know you're dedicated to one thing you're gonna put 100 percent into it you can eat cheerios you know once a day and it's cool you get married that is not okay <laughs> no longer okay and you know it's i think that a large part of being a man is about sacrifice for others. And so you learn to change your priorities. 
I think a big one for me recently I've been it's kind of been like hitting me in the face but like when you're single or um before your marriage I should say like just some things like to dudes okay most things to guys just aren't a big deal like you know it can be small little and just kind of it happens and we move on and I've been learning like okay well with my wife like a lot of things that seem small to me aren't to her and because they are big to her that means they're big to me and like just understanding that and like being okay in my like in my mind with that it's like a it's been a big change you know like yeah something will happen and you know she may be upset and i'm like babe it's just not a big deal and she's yeah. like it is to me and i'm like oh <laughs> you know like just realizing that like yeah. things have different levels of of impact and sure you know well, it's important to her making it important to me yeah and we're back to that balance you know that's another area where we need experience and truth has a right hand and a left hand mm-hmm. because you're 100 percent right and one of the things that's so interesting about marriage is it's her job to affect me, but it's also my job to affect her. And I mean, we talk about, you know, uh, to present her, you know, uh, washed and spotless, you know, by the washing of the word, like it says in the Bible. And, you know, the truth of the matter is sometimes the answer is I need to take this more seriously. And sometimes the answer is you need to not take this so seriously, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's like anything else it just takes experience to learn when no my job like i'm right it's my job to lead my family this way right now versus okay i'm wrong it's my job to to change mm-hmm. uh so it's interesting yeah looking forward a bit um long-term goals vision direction future projects what do you have in store <sighs> a lot more books <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I like to joke people have their TBR list to be read. I think I've got my TBW. Yep. Got a lot of things I want to write. I'm always juggling a couple of projects. I, I do some ghost writing as well. Um, I just finished uh, a couple of book proposals for my agent this week. Um, I've had a couple of novels in my back pocket that we'll be coming out with, uh, you know, in the near future. Um, one of which is sort of more like an urban fantasy novel, one that I'm really excited about. And, uh, I'm working on an epic fantasy trilogy, which I'm very much looking forward to getting out there into the world. So a lot of books, and uh, you know, we've got a couple of film projects that are a little bit up in the air that hopefully something happens with them. We were talking before the show, there's a TV show that I developed for a producer up in LA about a year ago. Uh, we were up and down from LA several times doing table reads and, and getting feedback and critique. So uh, we'll see, you know, this business is a lot of put your all into something and put it out there and see what catches and then work on what catches. So that's what I got. It's cool. Yeah. That's crazy, dude. <laughs> like shaking my head, thinking about it. Like, wow. Yeah. Of, I know it's a very different world. Yeah. A lot of times people say, so what, what do you do? I say, yeah. Hey, if you figure it out, let me know. I mean, I like in it my mind, writing. I'm relating it to like, so for me, like the sales process for something, right? Yeah. Like, you you don't know if you're gonna get the sale you don't know how it's gonna work but you're gonna do the best you can and totally. you follow up and you pursue that for a certain time um but like for me at least like the amount of work that goes into it is way different than like for you let's say like some type of yeah. potential tv show or um film project whatever it is like you gotta really create something like a, yeah. i'm assuming hours and it's, hours it's it, weird it's man. it's um it's crazy poured my heart into things that yeah. are collecting dust you know? hmm. however i don't know what the end of my life looks like you know, uh, mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese, the, the famous film director, his passion project, his movie that he always wanted to make, and he's Martin Scorsese, right? It took him 30 years to get it produced. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. People didn't want to do it. He couldn't get it financed. Didn't happen. It took him 30 years. So it's it's playing the long game, you know. It's hmm. crazy. Uh, wrapping up here and probably related, I, w- I would think, but um, if you can go back and sort of have a heart-to-heart with 18, 18-year-old Wes, what would you tell him or what would you uh, advise him to do? Be nice to Jeremy when you catch him. <laughs> <laughs> I think all things considered, I was nice to Jeremy. Gosh. You know, <laughs> while there is a lot of specific stuff, I think the most helpful things would have been what every 18-year-old needs to hear. You know, I, I think it it would be, hey, you don't think that you're arrogant, but here are the ways that you actually mm-hmm. are arrogant. You know, you uh, and just sort of an unveiling of, you know, your expectations versus life, what what you ought to do, what you ought to produce, how you ought to live, you know. Um, I think that uh, I think that there is a level of conceit that I didn't know that I had that me and 18-year-old me would have a talk about. Mm-hmm. But we would have a long talk. we talk about a lot of things. <laughs> it would take a while maybe to get through some of the layers. I might just shake my head instead of talking. <laughs> just walk away. That's funny. I guess I should probably get in the game, huh, Corey? Let me get one. Ah, let's see here. It's an easy one. It's, it's right there. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, when all is said and done, what is one thing that Wesley Fulgerson, W.A. Fulgerson, wants to be remembered for? Shouldn't say one thing, but just overall. Well, do you mean personally, or do you mean, I mean, as a career? Yeah, yeah I mean? would say, like, just the, yeah, the life of Wes. Like, what is it that you produce, that you put out, that you did with your life? It is my hope that through my work and through my life that people look at what is beautiful and true. And what they do with that is up to them. Now, as uh, a writer and as an avid reader as well, favorite books uh, and or authors, because I'm sure there's probably too many to list. Oh, yeah. Uh, He's probably going to give the most like (laughs) in-depth answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 12 hours later. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up on Tolkien, love his books, uh, grew up on a lot of C.S. Lewis. I like Isaac Asimov for science fiction. Uh, I like, you know, a lot of poetry. I like Pablo Neruda. I like, um, you know, a lot of Shakespeare's stuff, a lot of the, you know, the poets from that era. Um, I've loved The Once and Future King by T.H. White. That's had a big, a big impact on my, on my writing and reading. Mm. Uh, too many to count, man. A lot of good books. That's a good list, yeah. yeah. Uh, good ones to digest. Jeremy, you want to take us home? Uh, yeah, for sure, man. A few more, though. Who do you look up to? A lot of people. Uh, the easiest answer is I really look up to my writing mentor. He's taught me a lot. I appreciate him. His name's Bill Farrell. Check him out. <laughs> he uh, he writes, like, marriage and, and relationship advice books. Hmm. Um, really great guy. Uh, you know, there's a couple of pastors at our church. Uh, I mean, really, I, I look up to all of them in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, I, I really appreciate sitting down and having long talks with Jim Dealing or, or Kevin Miller, you know. Um, in terms of my peers, I really look up to a guy named Zach Hayes who uh, once brewed some beer and didn't give any to Jeremy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> He's been on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, He's Isaiah. never allowed back, though. Yeah. yeah. Just kidding. Isaiah Leper, Chris Alley. Those are three guys kind of from our Good our name. age group that I, I really appreciate and look up mm-hmm. to. Um, yeah, there's a few. 
I'm sure there's others. If you could um, give one piece of advice to the next uh, generation of Christian men, what would that be? I think presently we're still the next generation of Christian men. Um, But uh, in terms of those that are coming after us, I guess, I think that what I would say is rightly divide the word of truth. I think that we have an epidemic of creating things in our own image instead of dealing with reality as it is. You know, I think we can uh, just have such a confirmation bias rather than really truly looking at reality, looking at what works and what doesn't, what's harmful, what's not, what's helpful, what's not. Um, So I think that truth is going to be a a very important concept for the ones that come after us. Good. All right, well, that's all the questions. Um, Where can people learn more about you, find your books, and... Great. Yeah. You know, the world is still shut down. So Amazon is the best place to buy For Whom the Sun Sings and some other stuff that I've written. And, uh, you know, the best place to follow me is on Instagram at W.A. Fulkerson. We also have a website, wafulkerson.com, but uh, Instagram gets updated the most. So probably your best bet. Cool. All right, Wes. Well, hey, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for the awesome book. I'm looking forward to finishing it. Um, I would highly encourage everyone to pick up a copy. Um, and look into the other ones too. I'm, I'm, I think I'm now going to look into the trilogy as well, and probably also the uh, writing. Yeah, that's um, writing with purpose. Writing with purpose. Okay, that way I can so. start my book. Yeah, that's right. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thanks again, yeah, thanks, and appreciate dude. your time. And it's, it's been great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun.